end of a series, a one-word teaching series called Stand. Everyone say Stand. Stand. And it's taken, of course, out of Ephesians chapter 6 where the Bible says to be strong in the Lord and the power of His might and to stand and to put on the whole armor of God. And there's six pieces to the armor of God. There's the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. There's the utility belt of truth. There is the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. It's the shield of faith. And we've come to the seventh piece of armament called the armor of God. This is the armor that's designed for God, designed for Jesus. But we get to put it on, wear it, use it, walk in it. That sixth piece is the sword of the Spirit, the Bible says, which is the Word of God. The Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 6, having done all to stand, take up, take up the shield of the, of the uh, faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And with every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and to this end, be alert with all perseverance and requests for all of God's people. So number six, we begin today, and we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Everyone say, sword of the Spirit. Well, most people don't fight with swords anymore today, but a sword was a weapon of warfare. It was the weapon that the whole world used at one time in warfare. So I want to I first bring out the obvious that the, that the Bible is talking about God's Word being used. It's used for many things, but in this instance, it's used as a weapon. In Proverbs 4, the, the Word of God is used for healing. His Word is health to all their flesh. Um, the Word of God is used for deliverance. The Word of God is used to bring peace. In this case, I want to talk about God's Word as a weapon. And let me give you a simple definition. The Scripture says the sword of the Spirit is God's Word used against the resistance to His promises. Let me say that again. The sword of the Spirit is when the Word of God is used against the resistance to God's promises. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of that eternal life that you were called for. And so there is a fight to the faith. And the reason there's a fight to the faith is because there's a devil who resists your obtaining the promises of God. Now that scripture in 1 Timothy 6.12 that says, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life that you were called to. Indicates that God has called you and I to eternal life. Now eternal life is not just when you go to heaven, but eternal life begins now. The reason people are going to go to heaven is because they have eternal life in them at the point that they die. In other words, when, they, when their body gives out and they die, their soul lives on because their soul has received eternal life through Jesus Christ. So eternal life begins now for every person who has Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He says, I've come that they might have life, have it more abundantly. So 
I want you to stop thinking of eternal life as something that begins when you go to heaven. Instead, I want you to think of eternal life as that entire sphere of benefit that you receive by walking in the life of Jesus Christ. When that life is in you, health is in you, healing is in you, deliverance is in you, peace is in you, all of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, the potential of the gifts of the Spirit, gifts of prophecy, tongues, interpretation, gifts of healings, working of miracles, all of these things are in you because the life of God is in you. You shouldn't imagine at any time that you or anybody else could get saved and the Lord carves off a little piece of Jesus in, into your heart, and you're, but you've got the piece that doesn't have any power to it. You know, um, all of us receive Christ, receive Jesus, and so he enters our life in his fullness. So because of it, we are called to eternal life, and we have that eternal life now. Now there's benefits that will come when we enter eternity. But right now in this life, the scripture tells of some pretty fantastic blessings that are ours. Complete authority over the devil and his devices. Access to peace, joy, victory, triumph, all these wonderful things. Um, uh, the scripture says that uh, I give you authority, Luke 10, 19, over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall by any means harm you. It's tremendous benefits. However, these which I will refer to as the promises or the benefits of life, which we are to take hold of, the scripture says you must fight to take hold of them. Why would you have to fight for something that's already been given to you? If it's been given to you, what's the fighting all about? The fighting is because there's a devil that's going to chase you around every day of your life and try to keep you from accessing what God has given you. Try to keep you from using it. Try to talk you out of that benefit. Fight you usually, mostly, on a mental level and talk you away from believing what God has given you. So the Bible says, fight the good fight, not of arguments with people or beating your head against the wall or, the, or even the, the fight of doing your best to try to be better every day. It's called the fight of the faith. And notice the Bible doesn't say, fight the good fight of faith. The King James says, fight the good fight of faith. But in all the other translations, the definite article the precedes the word faith. So he's not saying fight the good fight of believing because people believe all kinds of things. Just because you believe it doesn't make it so. Your believing something doesn't sanctify it. Your believing something, no matter how dearly you possess that belief, doesn't make it sacred. Truth is sacred. Reality is is sacred. The truth of God is reality. That is sacred. That is the faith. It's the only faith God will honor. And so it is not fight the good fight of trying to believe. It's fight the good fight of the faith of the truth of the gospel. So when you see the word the faith, it's talking about the gospel. And you and I would benefit greatly if we believe it. And fight that fight of faith, pursue it, and take hold of it. Amen?
So there is a fight to the faith because there's a Satan that resists your obtaining the promises that God has called you to take hold of. So what I'm saying to you today is there are rich, tremendous blessings that God has given with perfect equality in the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, to whosoever will. That is the qualification. It's not where you were born. It's not what your race or gender is. It has nothing to do with your skills or even your IQ. In fact, it doesn't even have anything to do with your ability to do good things or your difficulty because you are tempted to, um, uh, you know, skirt the corners uh, every now and then. It, it, it isn't about your, the ease with which you maintain moral excellence, although all those things may be important. But it comes down to simply whosoever will. The person who, even if they're a little child, who can believe the blessing and the promise of God can have it. Whosoever will, let him come. Amen? So the idea is we're fighting the fight of faith to take hold of these blessings. And I'm saying to you, they are yours. And so if you hear me say things today that you have maybe discounted in your own life, look back, look at them again and consider maybe you're living below your privileges as a child of God. Now, the metaphor, sword of the spirit, is very important, and I just want to break it down in two steps. Number one, it's referred to as a sword, and I think I've already mentioned it, but, but let me just bring it out. The fact that the word of God is called a sword reveals that faith in God's word must be aggressive. If you're going to fight through the demonic resistance that is out there, to try to oppose your taking hold of the promises of God. So what I'm trying to say is Jesus offers us peace in a world of conflict. That peace is not dependent upon the conflict ending. It's depending on you taking hold of the peace. So peace is not the cessation of conflict. It is the taking hold of the promises of God. The conflict of Satan's resistance against us is something we must aggressively and intentionally overcome with the fight of faith. Hence, the sword of the Spirit. So this, this word is the metaphor of a sword because we have to take it and use it to cut through whatever is hindering us. The second part of this metaphor is that it, the Bible calls it the sword of... Wow. You mean it doesn't say the sword of Giselle? It doesn't say the, the sword of, of Mel, of Melissa? Or the sword of Terry? Or the sword of Jesse? It says the sword of the Spirit. Now, does that mean that you're not to handle it? No, but what it does mean is that when you do handle it in faith, the Spirit takes hold of it, and it becomes the sword of the Spirit. The metaphor of the sword of the Spirit implies that this is a team weapon, a team weapon, that when you take it up 
in faith and stand upon the promises of God's Word, the Holy Spirit begins to arise in this Word. Um, when you take your stand on the Word of God against whatever is resisting your apprehending the promises of God, whether it is some kind of depression, heaviness, fear, or anxiety, or stress that's in you, or whether it's a circumstance outside of you that is opposing you. Whatever it is, it's trying to misdirect or impede or hinder your taking hold of the peace, taking hold of the blessing, taking hold of the prosperity, taking hold of the, the life that Jesus has for you. If you don't deal with that opposition with the Word of God, you're just simply going to remain stalemated. You're simply going to remain separated from that blessing if you let the devil back you down. But when you take your stand on the Word of God and get aggressive, you see the sword of the Spirit is not used to eliminate the devil from the earth. It's used to apprehend and take hold of the blessings of God. So it's used just to cut through that momentary opposition so that you can take hold of God's blessing. You defeat the enemy, you know he's going to be back in a week. Is he, is he not going to be back in a week? And are you going to say when he comes back in a week, oh, what was wrong with me? My faith failed? I hope not. Because the Bible says that when Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights and fasting and the enemy tempted him, three times the devil came against him with intense temptations. And we'll talk about them in a few moments. Each of the three times Jesus resisted him simply by saying, it is written. And when that trial was all over with, the Bible says, and Satan departed from him for a moment until there was a more... So unless you got something more than what Jesus had, then he's going to leave you for a moment. And then he's going to come back. His coming back is not an indication that you were not victorious. It's an indication that you still live in the world. It's an indication you live in a world of conflict. So you must always fight the fight of faith. <coughs> Excuse me. Some of you that wash dishes in your home, um, I know you get tired of washing that same platter, that same bowl, that same fork. And you probably sit there saying, I have washed this thing a thousand times. When's it going to just stay clean? When you die and stop using it? So the fact is that you can't look at the fact that you've got to wash those dishes over and over and over again as failure in your life. Why don't they just stay clean? So the reality is we move through life and as we do, we encounter conflict. Conflict is part of everyday life. And if you can't live with that, then you need to grow up and face reality and know that you can have joy in the midst of the battle, joy in the midst of the struggle, joy in the midst of the... The joy is the victory I have. I mean, I actually get a kick out of beating the devil once a week. I mean, I, every day if I could, uh, it might be the same trial, but I love the fact that I get to overcome him. Can you say amen? amen? All right, so the Spirit of God will, you, will come upon the Word and it becomes the sword of the Spirit when you apply it aggressively against whatever obstacle is keeping you from God's blessing. An analogy that I like to, to use in my own mind to think about it is a two-seater fighter jet. It's got two guys in it. It's got a pilot, 
and it's got the MIB, which stands for, does anybody know what the MIB is? Terry, you know what the MIB is? Man in back. Man in back. So the pilot is putting the plane on the target. Guess what the MIB, the man in back, is doing? He's shooting. The pilot's busy flying. He's putting that thing on the target. The weapon system operator's doing the shooting. He's not fire, he's not flying it. You put the word on the target, the devil will fire. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit will fire. Well, I suppose there would be some incoming. So the point is, the fact is that you are flying through life in a two-seater fighter jet. It's not all you. It's not all the Holy Spirit. You guys are a team. And this becomes the sword of the Spirit when you are not flying away from the trouble, but you're putting the bullseye right on the problem, and you aim the word of God at the enemy, the devil will, I mean, the Lord will anoint that, and he will make sure that it becomes the sword of the Spirit. All right, let's move on. Let's talk, if, we, if we're talking about the sword of the Spirit as a weapon, and we're talking about conflict, then there's obviously a battlefield somewhere. Now, I don't know how much you're going to, I don't know how many praise the Lords I'm going to get out of this, but it's truth, so I'm going to tell you anyway. The battlefield on which you must defeat the resistance to what God has promised you begins in you. You're the first battlefield that you need to fight the fight of faith in. If you're going to fight the fight of faith successfully on the battlefield of your external circumstances and lay hold of the blessings of God of eternal life, you must first fight the fight of faith over your own resistance to the blessings of God. So when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and he says, fight the fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life, he's in the midst of having a conversation with Timothy. And he is saying to Timothy, if you read that whole sixth chapter, and I recommend that you do read it, the conversation is going something like this. He's saying, some people think that to gain the world, getting things, getting recognition, getting attention, getting all the love you think that you need, and all the attention you want, and getting the financial security you think you have to have, just whatever it is out there that the world offers that people tend to work for or strive for or set their affections upon, when you make those things what you long for in life and you reach out, it breeds discontentment so that some people think gain is godliness. Now, this is a conversation in the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy that Paul's having with Timothy. And he says, but I say to you that godliness with contentment is great gain. And so he goes on and then he warns Timothy to keep himself free from pursuing all of these worldly pursuits that are simply going to impale your mind, your heart, 
and create a separation between you and God. Doesn't mean you couldn't get saved, but you're not going to live a victorious overcoming life. You're going to wonder, why are all those Christians, what are they excited about? I never feel that kind of excitement. Because you are trapped in that thorn thicket, if you will, impaled in discontentment because you're pursuing the wrong path. You've asked Jesus in your heart, but, but you're still chasing the wrong thing. So Paul is having this discussion with Timothy, and he says to him in verse 11, But you as a person dedicated to God, flee, keep away from all of that. Instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, endurance, and gentleness. So he's saying to Timothy, didn't Jesus tell you, seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added? Withdraw the primary affection of your soul from all those worldly cares. Put them on the Lord. Put them on above. It's not that those are not legitimate things or the Lord doesn't want you to have them. But the problem is that it's too easy for the devil to impale your life and to tangle you up and you cannot obtain the blessings of God unless you're first seeking his kingdom. And so it is in that context that he says, after he says, don't pursue those things, flee them and pursue instead the Lord, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life. So what he's saying is the fight of faith begins in you. Before you can, like Don Quixote, go charging off and assailing the windmills of injustice and, and, uh, and, and uh, social depravity and corruption in the church and corruption in the world, and <coughs> you start going out there to attack all that the devil's doing, just remember, the first thing that needs to be cleared up, the first battlefield where that fight of faith needs to begin is in you, praise the Lord. Uh, you'll usually have your hands full with you. I haven't met too many Christians that move on to somebody else once they've gotten themselves worked out. Okay, so that's the battlefield. Um, in fact, you know, you walk in faith <clears throat> and, and apply the sword of the Spirit successfully in your life. The battlefield around you in your family and in your circumstances may or may not work itself out, but you'll not be trapped in it. You can be an overcomer, and that's, that's what we're aiming for in this life. Amen? All right, so let me, let me do this. Let me now, I've, I've talked about the Word of God as a sword, a weapon. I've talked about the battlefield that the Word of God is used in. Now let me get down and talk about why is the Word of God the choice weapon of the Holy Spirit? And... I want to use another metaphor. It's because the Word of God is the script of life. Think of an actor. If you took a job, you're going to make, you're going to make $10 million uh, learning this part. Somebody's going to send you a what? Script. script. You're not going to get paid if you walk on and start babbling off the top of your head whatever you think. Ought to be. If you're going to integrate in the story, if you're going to be successful at being the person in that story, you've got to do what? Follow the script. Now, God's Word is the script of life. And, and let me just say this about it. The Bible says God upholds all things by the Word of His power. 
The Bible says we understand through faith that the worlds and the universe were literally framed by the Word of God. God's Word is life to those who find it, health to all of their flesh. There's nothing in reality beyond the universe. Whatever reality encompasses that has not been created and is being maintained by the Word of God. God's Word is the script of life. Everything outside of God's Word is some form of a lie, of a mutation, of a departure. The Word of God is the only thing God will honor. God does not honor the opinions of men unless they agree with His Word. God is not obligated to honor needs unless those needs come into the focal range of the Word. In God's Word, He has done everything beyond humanly possible to create a low step and a wide open door for human need to come and receive every mercy, help, and form of deliverance that is conceivable. So God has provided everything that anyone will ever need. Come to me, Jesus said, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All you that heavy, I will give you rest. God's word is the script of life. So let me ask you a question. I want you to kind of keep this in the back of your mind uh, from here on out in the message. What is written in the script about the resistance to God's promises in your life? What is resisting God's blessing in your life this morning? What is it that's impeding you? What's standing in your way? What are the problems, if you will, what are the thoughts? What are the internal barriers that you struggle with that are keeping you from the highest order of blessing that God has said is yours? Think about it. The Lord has said you should walk in perfect peace. You should be in health and prosper as your soul prospers. You should be overcoming and walking in victory. And the Bible doesn't say that you won't have trouble. The Bible doesn't say you won't have problems. The Bible doesn't say you won't be assailed, attacked, or tested by the enemy, but you should be overcoming. You should be walking in victory. So the blessings of God are overcoming and having His peace and having victory. If you're not, then I want you to think, what is standing in the way? What is the obstacle today to me receiving God's blessing? Now, you don't have to say it. I just want you to frame it, think about it in your mind. Because the question now is, what is written in the script about that resistance? What does God's word say about the enemy that is opposing you? You have the sword of the spirit. If you reach for it, where are you reaching? What does the word say about the fight that you are facing today? As I said before, John 10 verse 35, Jesus put it this way in his own vernacular. Jesus said, the scripture cannot be broken. John 10, 35. That word broken means it cannot be canceled out. It cannot be set aside. In other words, 
It is impossible for the word of God to be unfulfilled. God will not ignore his word. It will not return to him void. It will not be overturned. It will not be overthrown. There will never be a time, nor has there ever been a time, when the word of God has been defeated. It has been ignored, but it has never been defeated. You cannot take hold of the word of God by faith. You cannot act upon the word of God in a heart of faith, and God will not honor his word. He will honor his word. The scripture cannot be annulled or set aside. Now, let me say this to you. The devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, has one strategy. He's had it since Adam and Eve. It's the strategy that always works. It's still working. It's the one he always uses and always will use. You want me to tell you what it is? This will help you. If nothing else I say helps you this morning, what I'm about to tell you will help you. Satan's one strategy is pull you off script. Pull you off script. Whatever it takes, push you off script. Get you to talk your own script. Get you off script. Get you out of character. Get you using lines in life that are not God's word, that are not God's script. This is the one where you're victorious. This is the script where he has given you authority over the enemy. This is the one where you're triumphant in him. The devil does everything he can do to get you off script. Now, if you think about it for a moment, the Bible is really a book of testimonies and stories of men and women who were on, stayed on script, regardless of the opposition. Uh, Gideon and all these different people that God spoke to, they were down and out. They were defeated. They had bad attitudes. They had serious problems. Yet the Lord came to them and he spoke his word to them. And to the extent that they took hold of that word and believed it to that extent, their lives were transformed. And in the wake of the transformation of their lives, many, sometimes tens and hundreds of thousands of people were blessed. In the case of Abraham, we have one such example. When the Bible, in retrospect, looks back at the life of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, and the scripture says that Abraham, in hope, believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations as he had been told. In other words, the script. God dropped a little piece of the script on Abraham and said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven and on the sands, the sands of the sea. Abraham latched onto that like a pit bull. He was all over that thing like a five-legged mountain lion. And he was 75 years old, and his wife was 65 at the time, 66 actually. She was nine years younger than him. She was barren. They had never had children. And here comes God says, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars you see in the sky. And Abraham believes it. The script, very simple. You read in the 15th chapter of Genesis and in the 17th chapter of Genesis, the covenant God made with Abraham. God's a man of few words. He, the script is very simple. He just says a few things. He keeps it deliberately simple. And so the Bible says that Abraham against hope 
believed that he might become the father of many nations, just as God had told him, so shall your offspring be. And it goes on to say, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old when, the, when his son Isaac finally came. He was 100 years old. Uh, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, who at that time was 91 years old. Had a baby at 91 years old. A barren woman. You can't get deader than that. So, at any rate, there's miracles in this story on many levels. I won't comment on them. But the, the point is that it said, even when he considered the deadness of his own body and that of his wife, no distrust made him waver concerning God's promise, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why... His faith was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness is just a, a simple word that describes right standing. If you have righteousness with God, it means you are in right standing with God. And can I tell you something surprising this morning? God considers you in right standing with him if you stay on script. It's not how many good deeds you do when you go out there. It's not how much money you give in the offering. It's not how many times you're in church. It's not all those things that may be good, may be moral. You may be a great social warrior, great champion of the, of the causes, relief of, a reliever of human suffering. None of that makes you righteous with God. Not one bit. The only thing that makes you righteous with God is do you stay on script. Because this is the word upon which the universe is based. And so God is simply looking for people who will stand upon his word, the script of life. Now, let's fast forward to Jesus, and this is the last example I want to give you. Jesus is probably our premier example of using the sword of the spirit or the script of life. And we see this in Luke chapter 4. I think it's also in Matthew chapter 4, but we're going to take Luke's account of the three temptations of Jesus. I'm going to go through the whole thing because most of you are familiar that he was, he was led of the Spirit after the baptism in the Jordan River. And the Holy Ghost comes upon him. He's led by the Spirit into the wilderness where 40 days. He doesn't have a blender out there. He's not making power drinks. He's not... He's, he's not on the Daniel, the Daniel fast where you can eat as many beans as you can possibly jam in your, in your stomach. I'm sorry, but at any rate, I, I, I think to myself, man, I could fast the whole rest of my life if I could just if I eat that Daniel's fast, just cram all that, if I could stand that food, which I barely can. But So the point is simply this, I digress, that Jesus is out there not eating nor drinking for 40 days. You get basic real quick, real quick. So he's out there all by himself, and you get down to just keeping your mind focused on one thought in front of the next, one foot. Just imagine. So he's out there, and the devil is just tempting him, 
And at the end of the 40 days, probably the 39th day, we can use our imagination, that wouldn't be too off, somewhere near the end, 39th day perhaps, the Bible says he is hungry. Which means he was hungry on day one. Have you ever fasted? Yeah, you're hungry on day one. But on that 39th day, there's only one thing you are, hungry. And so the Bible says he was hungered. It probably, uh, it's probably not a stretch to, to think that he was weak. No water, 40 days. And the devil comes to him. And Satan tries to pry him away from God by tempting him to corrupt three of life's most legitimate needs. But Jesus stays on script. Notice he doesn't argue, doesn't wrestle, doesn't reason, doesn't rationalize, doesn't have a pity party, doesn't moan. Why won't the devil leave me alone? This is ridiculous. God, can't you keep him away from me? I'm in my weakest, weakest moment. Instead, he simply uses the script. Three times, and the Bible says the devil had it, walked off, failed. Temptation number one was the temptation to put your needs first. Satan says, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He could see that Jesus was hungry. He could see that Jesus had privilege as the son of God. He had a right he could have turned the rock into bread on day three. It wouldn't have been sin. He was not, as, as far as we could see, he was not under some sort of divine command that he, he had to fast. It was his choice. He's fasting. And any time he could have eaten. But between him and the Father, they've got this fast mapped out. And Satan comes and says, feed yourself. Put your needs first. Whatever commitments between you and God, break it in order to meet needs that your father wants you to have. Your father wants you to eat. So just eat. And, and there's nothing out here to eat, so just turn that rock into. Put your own rights. He had a right to eat. Put your own needs. He needed to eat. Put them first. But Jesus answers, and he simply goes to the script. And he simply says, man shall not live by bread alone. He doesn't comment about how hungry he is. He doesn't comment about how it felt when, Jesus, uh, when the devil said that to him. He simply says, man shall not live by bread alone. He makes his choice. Simple. Quotes that one verse, that trial's over with. So here comes the devil number two. Temptation number two was the temptation to be influential. By the way, back to temptation number one. Is eating legitimate? If eating is not legitimate, there's a whole mess of us here this morning that are about to go out and sin within the next hour. So there's nothing wrong with eating. Do we understand that? Okay. Number two, the second temptation is the temptation to be influential. Not only is there nothing wrong with being influential, Jesus said, let your light shine before men. We ought to be influential for God. 
But notice how the devil is insinuating himself into the life of Jesus, trying to, like a crowbar, pry him away from God by getting Jesus to act on things he has a right, and they may even be in line with his mission, but to simply do them in his own timing, in his own strength, in his own counsel. And so the devil takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time, and he says to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, I want you to think for just a moment what's going on in the devil's mind. He's thinking, if this is the Messiah, he is ordained to inherit the world. And I'm offering him a shortcut to glory. I'm going to get, I am going to tempt him with his own destiny. Listen to me. How many Christian men and women let the devil tempt them with God's will, with their own destiny, with the legitimate purpose that God has for their life? Rather than waiting for God to work it out in their life, tempt them with a shortcut, tempt them to take in hand with their own strength, their own ideas to run out and do what God's put in their heart to do. All these nations will be yours. And let me take it a step farther and say, have you ever considered he said, I will give you all these nations. Knowing that you're a pretty good guy, you're probably the Messiah, the world will be under righteous rulership. The Prince of Peace will rule the nations of the world. That's fine with me as long as I'm the way you get there. I don't care if uh, your first act is to lock up every demon. And you can call the angels down and rule the world just so long as you let me be your access to the fulfillment of your destiny. Are you listening to this? So just think about it. The enemy tempts us to be influential. We want to be influential. We feel it is our obligation to be influential. We feel we ought to be letting our light shine. However, the devil simply says to Jesus, you can have it all now. You don't have to go through everything that you're about to go through. Just, I'll give it to you right now. Jesus, once again, will not go off script. And he says, simply, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He doesn't even address the offer. He simply says, I'm sorry. Only God can be worshipped. That shuts the whole argument down. We waste so much time like lawyers pleading cases with the devil. Don't get into conversations with the devil. Even in your own mind, just get the word and lay it out there. You shall worship the Lord your God. Boom, it's the end of the discussion. It's over. Move on to the next trial. Are you listening to me? So Jesus stays on script and chooses God as his promoter. Hallelujah. Third and final temptation is the temptation to be amazing. The temptation to be remarkable. That is a big temptation today. You only have to just go on Instagram or go on Facebook and find out that everybody is 
a movie star in their own mind. Everybody's a hero in their own story. Everybody's amazing. In fact, um, there's not too many churches that you can't walk into today where regardless of what's being preached, it comes down to you can have an amazing life. You can be amazing. You are God's champion. It's all about making people feel just absolutely radically wonderful and spectacular and amazing. Aren't you amazing? Yes, you are amazing. Say it with me. I am amazing. So the temptation to be remarkable, the temptation to be amazing. Well, is there anything wrong with it? I mean, actually, when it comes right down to it, God has made us in His image and likeness to be a reflection of His glory. The desire to be amazing, the desire to be remarkable, comes from the basic DNA of our creation. We're created to reflect His glory. So it is in us to be that way. But how we get there, once again, it comes down to making the rocks into bread or accepting the nations handed to you rather than going through the cross. So the fact is, he takes him up on the, the tower of the temple, the high tower, and looking down at all the people below. Now understand, Satan says, because he knows the word, Psalm 91, Jesus, you know what it says, cast yourself down and... Uh, the angels will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So prove that you are the Son of God and just leap off and float down to the ground. Just float down to the ground right in front of the high priest, right in front of all that. They'll come running out of the temple. They will see what? The Messiah floating down to them. The Messiah is coming floating down. Isn't that what you're here for? They'll all see. I mean, you won't have to go through all this. You will be amazing. They'll see how amazing you are. And the devil's there pushing them. Just show them how amazing you are. Show them how remarkable you are. Jesus was going to show everybody how remarkable he was. But only when and to the degree that the Father said. It was always in Jesus' mind, let the Father's glory be reflected in me. I'm not here creating my own glory. I will be glorified in my obedience to the Father. That's the only way he could say to Philip years later, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I do only those things that please him. So the devil says to him, let them see who you are. I'm trying to help you here. Once again, Jesus refuses to go off script. And he says, it is said in the word, you shall not put the Lord your God to a test. I've told you the story of a friend of mine many, many years ago when he was reading the Bible about Peter walking on the water and he let the devil get him into a condition where during his lunch break over in Tampa one day as he sat by a, by a reflective pool, pond, outside the hospital that he, if he truly loved God, he had to prove that he could walk on water because if the Lord was with Peter and with him, then he ought to be able to do it. And of course, he got about up to his, I think, nose before he finally turned around and walked back out again humiliated and discouraged, but he let the enemy put him into that position. So the reality is that you shall not put a test. You don't have to prove your faith. Don't let the devil put you in a situation where you have to prove your faith to anybody, nor do you have to get God to prove himself. 
He will prove himself to you through your faith. You don't have to put yourself out there and test. Just obey the Lord. Amen? Amen. So let me just wrap this up and say that at the end of these three temptations, the temptation to put your needs first, the temptation to be uh, 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 influential and relative and significant, Number three, the temptation to be amazing and remarkable. All those things. God wants to meet your needs and He is going to show His glory and remarkableness through you and all these things He's going to do. But if you will obey Him and stay on script, God will work all these things out. Your life will be lived for His glory. So the Bible says that after those three temptations, in Luke chapter 4, it says He was led of the Spirit full of the Spirit into the wilderness. In verse 14, after the temptations, the Bible says, and Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. The difference is he had used the sword of the Spirit. He had used the word to resist, uh, to, to overcome and to knock down and to cut his way through those things that were resisting the blessings of God in his life. And you and I, need to do the same. Can you say amen? amen. Let's stand together.